The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, there's been a lot of movement in the past, say, four to five weeks in the agricultural space, uh, particularly in agricultural trade. And this is an especially important topic right now, given that we're trying to see what the post-COVID-19 era is going to look like and how so many of Africa's economies that are struggling today are going to get back on their feet again. Agriculture might be one of the areas. And it's interesting because there's been about four or five different trade announcements that I want to kind of bring your attention to. And Kobus, I'd like to get your take on what all this means Uh, Last month, back in August, an Africa Cocoa trading center opened in Hunan province in China, in the city of Changsha. Now, right now, it's only handling imported cocoa from Ghana, but eventually officials say it'll be open to other countries as well. There was a lot of excitement about that. And then finally this week, after a year and a half, and we talked about this, Kobus, back in early 2019, about Kenyan avocados are now finally making their way to China. Now, the holdup had been for a year and a half was the fact that the avocados had to be flash frozen before they are, they are sent to, to China, in part because they want to prevent any pests from making their way over. This is a different restriction than when Kenya exports avocados to Europe. And because Kenyan farmers needed to buy those flash freezers, it really delayed the whole process. But The first consignment of Kenyan avocados has finally made it into China, and that opens up the possibility that that might expand a lot. And the reason why this is so important is because a lot of Kenyan farmers who are growing coffee today are eager to switch over to avocados because the profit margin and the labor required for avocados is much less than for coffee. Also, the Kenyan Export Promotion and Branding Agency, this is a new agency that's come up in the past few weeks, plans to open up a new tea distribution center in in the eastern Chinese province of Fujian. Now, although China is currently not a top destination for Kenyan black tea, Trade authorities seem to be very excited about this opportunity, in part because Chinese consumers are drinking a lot more milk tea, the boba teas, and those use black teas in particular. And there's a real growth in the demand for black tea. China's a major green tea producer, but Kenyan exporters seem to think that there's an opportunity there to grow the China market ahead. And then, of course, this is, this is just great. I love this story. Uh, there was an amazing Rwandan coffee sale that took place back in May on the Chinese uh, shopping site Taobao. And 3,000 bags, which is about 1.5 tons of coffee, sold out in less than 60 seconds. And that was all done. I mean, that's just one of those only in China stories. So naturally, that's gotten coffee producers and coffee exporters very excited about the huge potential to expand the China market for African blends from not only from Rwanda, but also Kenya, Ethiopia and elsewhere. So Kobus, it is really exciting to see all of this activity in the agricultural space. And it's interesting that we're moving beyond just the oil, mineral, and timber trade that has dominated so much of China-Africa commerce over the past, say, 15, 20 years. But I guess the question for me is, is it really enough to make a difference? What do you think? 
I think it could be potentially in the future. It's obviously starting quite small at the moment, um, but it, it points towards a, a future where Africa African economies could be making significant foreign currency from selling agricultural products um, internationally. Keep in mind that that many African countries are already selling agricultural products to Europe, um, and you know so so and, and the the size of the Chinese market is is very encouraging. Um, there are a few caveats though. Uh, you can of one being like as, as you said you know kind of these products have to be approved product by product so so it's a very kind of lengthy and slow process um, and there's lots of ways and we see this particularly in Europe there's lots of ways for local local kind of uh, bodies to try and keep competition out um, you know so it's not it's not an easy process to get your your products in I think the bigger issue is um, is what's happening with intra-African trade and the, because there I think there is real potential for to to kind of to lift you know kind of hundreds of millions of people out of poverty um south africa for example is already importing lots of agricultural products from all over the continent i, I was just looking through my own kitchen and we saw i saw um cashews from tanzania and mozambique um broccoli from from kenya um flowers of course very large in kenya that come to south africa and so 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 there is the potential for kind of intra-african trade to be boosted particularly on the back of the continental free trade agreement but there's many, many hurdles in that path as well. So let's think about where we are in terms of agricultural trade with China. And this great article came onto our site and just we published it last week, Rethinking China's Participation in African Agricultural Development in the Post-COVID-19 Era. And I love the fact that we're starting to think beyond the current crisis. Uh, and it was written by Duncan Chando, who's a Nairobi-based international development consultant, and also Kathy Gao, who we've had on the show before. She's a policy and partnerships analyst at the International Fund for Agricultural Development in Beijing. Duncan and Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So you guys wrote this this article. It's excellent. It's a nice, again, I really love the idea that we're starting to think beyond the crisis, even though we're still very much in the midst of this crisis. But long-term planning is very is critical. You talked about five ways China can enhance its agricultural engagement in Africa. Before we get to those five ways, Duncan, I'd like for you to kind of lay the groundwork for where we are today in terms of the issues that you highlighted in your piece about food security, trade, unemployment, and then, of course, talking about this all in the context of COVID-19. We realize that uh, we are in a, in, a, in a situation whereby, at this moment, Africa, even before, before COVID automatically, Africa was already facing a lot of uh, challenges in terms of food security. And uh, there's a research even in 2018 that showed that uh, a number of millions of people already uh, facing hunger. So even as we look at COVID, COVID generally uh, is escalating this situation because right now there are a lot of measures in different countries that have, have taken place and this has really impacted uh, the way agriculture is being done. So just to, just to look at some of these uh, issues, we find that, uh, for example, in, uh, in, in many countries, some of them, uh, there were a lot of lockdowns and this lockdown actually imp uh, affected the way agricultural produce will move from point A to point B. Uh, giving example, for example, in, in Kenya, whereby I think a number of uh, areas were locked. And uh, most farmers also depend in taking their produce to, to the bigger cities, Mombasa, Kisumu, Nairobi. And uh, for a very long time, I mean, during COVID, uh, some of these counties were locked out, so you could not move in and out of Nairobi. And uh, even though uh, 
it was possible for for cargo to move but for farmers it was a bit expensive because most of them also relied on uh, on normal day to day transport so doing the cargo was a bit again becoming more and more expensive for some of these farmers Kathy, Eric mentioned the possibilities of trade and exports, and then we also mentioned the possibility, the, the issue of food security. How do those two come together? Is it, is it possible for both of those problems to be solved at once by the same set of farmers, or are we looking at, at completely two different issues that need to be tackled in different ways? So, thank you, Kubus. Firstly, I think in terms of food security and food trade, they are, you know, all this happen within the food system. So, these issues are uh, are certainly interlinked. It's a matter of uh, how does it link with different uh, people. So, uh, in terms of uh, food security, as, as uh, Duncan mentioned earlier on in the COVID lighting situation, that you look, you look at uh, in Africa, Sub-Sahara, you know, the vulnerable countries, they're getting even more vulnerable. We are using more new projects for poor people. And uh, because of the food disruptions, then there are even more people uh, under food insecurity. Then this also happens even before COVID-19. Those countries have been affected also because of climate change or fragile states or whatever. So. What I wanted to see here is then the the food insecurity it it matters for more, more for the the vulnerable that that type that group of people they are already rural poor. Where when you talk about food trade, it also linked to their the the rural poor. For instance, are uh, because of the food disruptions, the uh, supply chain has. What, what their lack of uh, uh, finance, what their supply chain has uh, interrupted, and then the the farmers they cannot no longer sell the food because of COVID lighting. Then obviously they get uh, affected. Then uh, so so in terms of uh, uh, how to link these two together. I think we should uh, sort of have a long-term plan, uh, uh, resilience for the people, no matter they are rural poor or they are people even in the urban area, because in the end, everyone has to eat. And eating is obviously, you know, critical. I mean, that's <laughs> one of the, the foundations of life. And one of the challenges in Africa, of course, is the fact that it's a net importer of food. And so it's using also hard currency to purchase food I was just reading the other day that uh, uh, Vietnam is going to be selling more rice to Africa. And that is something that is difficult for a lot of people to understand, given the fact that there's so much agricultural potential in Africa, but yet it is still a net importer of food. Uh, Duncan, let's now start through your the list. You guys listed five different ways that China can enhance its agricultural engagement. I'd like you to be as specific as possible about the Chinese side of this, uh, both the pros and the cons. Uh, your point number one in your piece was early warning system support. What do you mean by that? Oh, what I mean by early warning system support is uh, you find that in many in many countries uh, there's a lot of uh, lack of qualified professionals uh, such as metrologists, agrometrologists, and then we also have like weak capacity uh, in terms of uh, investment. And at the same time, both at the national and the regional level in most African countries. So when you talk about early warning system. Uh, we find even if you look at, uh, at at the Sendai document that really uh, attributes that we there, there's a need for us to achieve uh, SDGs. There's a need to invest in uh, in trying to look at some of these uh, 
situation that arise before any any pandemic or uh, especially in agricultural uh, aspect so when you look at this with with china uh, how china can come in and support most of these african countries uh is is obvious that most a lot of uh a lot of uh, Chinese company, private companies are already working in, in, in African countries. And I think it can be a very interesting point of view whereby a number of Chinese companies can initiate, like we can have a public-private partnership uh, in the area of early warning system. Uh, because currently, as, as, we, as, as, we, as we see that uh, most countries are not having uh, a strong point in this, in this particular area. So these can again reduce if, if most of these uh, Chinese companies, which are already working in African countries, uh, if they partner with the, either the government, both at the national level or in most countries also, we now have the devolved system, for example, in Kenya, whereby this will reduce the reliance on donors because many a times we find that most Western donors are sometimes uh, in terms of giving uh, support, uh, the, the view is a bit different. So through this collaboration, I know that uh, mostly uh, I think we're also focusing on the South-South Triangular Cooperation, whereby I know with China there are some similarities that um, even the way they uh, they do the agriculture, maybe there's some little similarity of agricultural uh, system within Africa. So through South-South Triangular Cooperation, it, either it can be through uh, knowledge uh, sharing of knowledge, or it can be through uh, maybe in, in this context of, of COVID, a lot of webinars can, can be used to, to, to address this, to support most African countries in the area of early warning system. And again, a good uh, food security information system can be put in place because this is something that, again, which is lacking. And data is a very key specific thing that, that is needed when, when, if we are, we are to address food security. So we need to ensure that uh, some of this data is accessible not only at the national level, but also at the, at, at the continental level so that it can help within countries with regional to plan together in addressing some of these issues. Because truth be told, there are a lot of, a lot of challenges that are facing uh, most African countries which are similar. Uh, I think we, we've had the recent issues of, of uh, for example, the local that has affected most countries. So if you have some of these uh, research put together and data put together, I think it can be a very good way in which China can support most African countries. So let me understand that you're you're saying when you say China, you're not referring to the government. You're talking about Chinese companies, right? Yeah, we're talking. I guess the reason why I'm skeptical of that is that Chinese companies, for the most part, especially in Africa, are not really that well known for their corporate social responsibility and for for being engaged in these types of activities. What gives you the the idea or the optimism that this is something appealing to Chinese companies? Uh, because I, I think when, when we look at some of these, I mean, weather patterns, they can also, when they come, they also affect some of the companies that are working. For example, the mining company, when, when there's a lot of flooding and it was not well predicted, you know, sometimes it impedes their work. So if they can invest in supporting most of these African countries, then in the end, in the, in the long run, they might also be benefiting because mo given that most African countries are not well endowed in terms, of, uh, uh, in terms of infrastructure. So if they do this, then I think it's a win-win it's a situation, in, in my opinion. Uh, I just want to jump in. I think I pretty much uh, agree with what my colleague mentioned earlier on. Uh, just uh, back to your question about uh, private sector CSRs in, in Africa. I think uh, we, it's not that there are not 
But if you look, take a good, take just a, one example. If you look at Alibaba during the COVID lighting, they are the ones that are sending uh, PPEs around to many African countries, and uh, as well, they are the the in recent years they actually initiate social and enterprise entrepreneurial type of training for the young Africans. So I think uh, a lot of times it's not that uh, the China companies they doesn't want to do such type of work. I think it applies to all the, to many companies. It's a matter of how you match make the national needs or the grant uh, what the grant people like uh, lead or the vulnerable groups needs to the companies either products or their social responsibilities that they agree with or that are also priorities to them. Kathy, in, in the same vein, um, your second recommendation is is Chinese support for social grants um, to help to help vulnerable groups within African societies to to get over the COVID nineteen crisis um, without you know kind of without falling into complete poverty. Um, a similar question: Do you foresee the Chinese government being involved in that, or other Chinese actors like Chinese companies? Well, I think this is a very interesting question. Firstly, when we talk about China's aid or grants to Africa, it's a lot of times a bit complicated. We don't know whether it's free, what is known, what is investment. But uh, uh, what we were actually this uh, this recommendation came from my discussion with my colleague. When we're discussing about this, we thought. Uh, for grants, a lot of times you can expect the government, the China government, to provide through their development cooperation framework. And if you look at the data or look look back what China's strategy to Africa, indeed, China does provide, or in or at least in their agenda, they provide grants. But what we found is when China provides grants to Africa, a lot of times these grant criteria or the topics are a bit too general that you don't know what are, what are the clear objectives. At least for me, from a development professional perspective, if I have an international development project to work for, the, for instance, rural poor, I have an objective either to enhance the productivity of the uh, specific uh, uh, rural poor or, uh, or empower the rural women. So that's why we come up with this recommendation. We think in a COVID-19 situation, as well as the post-COVID-19 situation, the youth unemployment is one of the critical social issues as well as the the women that uh, are they could, that are left behind the rural women they need some assets or some capacity building trainings to give them uh, sort of opportunities to to enhance their income that's why we come in the end we conclude that uh, we we are expecting war or if we may allow or if we can we suggest when china to provide a Grants or aids to African countries, the they could uh, be more specific, especially on the youth, the rural women, and uh, the elderly. You've also talked about those communities are also tied in with this productivity question. And Duncan, let's go to this question, point number three in in your essay. 
really uh, addressing that food security is tied to the output from African farms. So if you can increase the productivity, more food can be generated, and obviously that can help address some of the food security challenges. Talk to us about the enhanced production capacities that you suggest. Yeah, actually, you know, truth be told, in most African uh, setup, you know, sometimes most people, uh, they do agriculture as a way of life. And sometimes they, there's the aspect of economic that is lacking in most of them. And at the same time, you find that most of them also do agriculture from a, a small scale point of view. So if with, 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 with land available in, in most African countries, I think when productivity is enhanced, and this one can be through mechanization because technology is a key thing in ensuring that uh, there's mass production. And uh, given that most uh, people will only rely on, on, on manual labor, which right now is not sufficient, uh, given that also a lot of young people who used to participate in agriculture in the rural area have also migrated to the cities. So you find that there's, there's a lack of, of, of labor that can, can support this productivity. So in, in, source, in saying this, I think China can really help in building uh, technology because uh, China is already doing this uh, in terms of uh, the demonstration centers that in, in, in some countries, I know in, uh, in, in, in most, even in East Africa, there are some countries where there are demonstration centers and we have uh, people coming uh, from China, experts coming from China and, and helping uh, farmers to learn new technology and how they can increase their production. But at the same time also, we, we live in a situation whereby learning is very key. So through this this uh, i mean this collaboration again through chinese government or chinese uh, development partners can try and and, and support uh, the issue of agricultural modernization uh, and supporting technology at the same time uh, this can also help in uh, in focusing also mostly in uh, among the youth and and women like my colleague said because there is the entrepreneurship point of view of agriculture which now is gaining is is gaining shape, but uh, still there's a long way to go, because a lot of people have lost their jobs even post COVID. I know, I know most people will not have jobs, but but agriculture can play a very very important role in ensuring that this this group of people that have that have lost their jobs can can be tapped because there's uh, with good technology at the same time with with good training this one can be a, a, can be a, I mean a blessing in disguise in in a way post COVID. And can you be more specific again as when you say Chinese partners, who are you referring to? We are referring to Chinese government through uh, the ODA support and through grant grants to most African countries. The China partners, the actors, I think private sectors, they are also included because if you ever read our article, we, we had uh, state clearly. Uh, the China private sector, especially those e-commerce companies, they could provide uh, support to promote small, medium entrepreneurial and enterprises in rural areas in, in Africa, especially the youth-oriented and women-inclusive e-commerce and value chain development. I think those points are sort of like comparative advantages which in China, uh, many Chinese companies has. And if there are some uh, proper uh, platforms or if there are some uh, uh, in-depth dialogues, uh, we, we could really think about uh, uh, the, 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 those comparative advantages that to, to bring to Africa to, to sort of localize and in the end to benefit to the uh, rural youth or rural women in African countries. But other than Alibaba, who else is active in the Chinese e-commerce space in Africa that would be capable of doing something like this? 
initially I actually I was uh, I heard some like there is a, a phone company which is trying if Transin. Yes, they have been working on like using mobiles such as to to sort of promote e payment or system in in Africa, but but I I don't know details. Duncan, in your your fourth point um, is one that we raise a lot um, in on this podcast is that there there needs to be more uh, investment in rural infrastructure in order to facilitate the kind of supply lay, supply lines from the areas where agriculture is is practiced to the ports and, and so on to 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 get it out, um, and that includes not only roads but but also warehouses, irrigation systems, and so on. Um, is there a way f um, in which African countries can grow that infrastructure without putting themselves further into debt? Because, uh, you know, up to now what we've seen, like China has built a, a lot of infrastructure in Africa, but it's almost always on the back of loans. Um, so how, how, how do you balance those two? Yeah, uh, what you're saying is true because I, I know the aspect of uh, infrastructure is a big challenge for, especially for the rural poor. And uh, given that agriculture is also pr practiced mostly in, in rural parts of most African countries, and uh, truth be told, that a lot of produce is being lost between the farm and when they reach maybe the capital city because of poor storage, like you mentioned, or because uh, also of poor roads, so the transportation is is hindered. Uh, but again, I know most African countries, uh, the infrastructure uh, is based on loans, yes. Uh, but I think it's also a way of through which it can be done in a way that uh, there's a there's a benefit for both uh, Chinese uh, private partners who are working in African countries, but at the same time also benefiting the community where they work with. Because, like for example, if you you'll find that um, some Chinese co uh, companies they do win uh, big tenders to do roads in African countries. And when they do this, I think it can also be a good point of them like uh, trying to support uh, most of these feeder roads, either through, uh, I can say, uh, I mean, through CSR, because when they get this contract to construct major highways, I think they can also chip in through supporting some of these feeder roads that goes into the highway. And this can also help rural farmers, in my opinion. But again... Uh, uh, the issue of food security also post-COVID is, is still a big challenge uh, because infrastructure is still a big problem. And uh, also, this also con uh, goes back in, in, in looking at even issues of electricity, which also support, for example, in warehousing and uh, for, for these perishable goods, it can be still a big challenge. So there's still a long way to go, but I think it's just a, a stepping stone. I mean, we can start uh, one step at a time. Eric, I would like to come back to this very interesting question again, because this is obviously a hot topic uh, when we're talking about China-African relations, or especially China's investment in Africa. But I just want to give you a quick data. Uh, the recent uh, research estimates that 73 million people will be Accurate, accurately food insecure in Africa. And the UN report says the continent needs to raise more than 100 billion USD to address the economic and health impact of COVID-19. So what I, will, I, I am uh, uh, emphasize here is indeed the continent, African continent, it needs some uh, invest money, it needs money, spend to sort of to tackle its challenges. 
it's, it, it, so it's a matter of how this money comes from either investment or loan or whatever. I recall one time I had I had a conversation with delegation African delegations in Beijing. So when we come back to this topic about uh, okay, first issue African needs money. Second, then which type of fund uh, you want? Then the delegation were were actually uh, telling me from the, their perspective why one solution is that a few African countries join together to to speak to the the countries that are you know the big investors to Africa. It can be you know it can be they jointly uh, they jointly work work together to speak to China or they jointly work together to to speak to OECD countries. I, I think this is a, in this type of way, then you have you have more bargaining power to to decide which type of finance you want. This is one point. My second second point come back to this uh, question this long investment issue is I think uh, now we are still living in a uh, global world that uh, multilateral multinationalism is still pretty much appreciated by most countries I mean so UN is still here international organizations are there so I I'm thinking if uh, when, for instance, when China partner with Africa in terms of infrastructure projects, whether the the UN organizations come in, then you know it, it sort of uh, help to balance the power between uh, the two individual countries, where you know as a uh, as somebody as a middleman that to sort of to to adjust the power, the different power relations between each other. Well, to be fair, uh, you know, to your point on African countries coming together to actually ask for debt relief and debt sustainability, uh, they have done that. They have done that in so many different ways, whether it's through the African Union, through the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, so many different ways. China, in in particular, has been absolutely clear. It is not going to wipe away the debt. It's been very, very clear. And so China is very much part of the problem here. The fact that those debt payments are still being made today. And so when we talk about where does the money come from, also the private creditors have not budged at all. There's not been any relief from private creditors. Only the multilaterals, IMF, World Bank, have given the flexibility. But interestingly enough, the G20's DSSI is only through this year. It's not even that significant. So there's been no meaningful debt relief. And so when we talk about, and this is something that Kobus and I have talked about on many exam, many previous shows, the international community is pretty clear that they're not that concerned about Africa's well-being. And I guess my key question for both of you before we get to point number five, Kathy, you really made a, an interesting point here. We're talking about 73 million people who are facing food insecurity on the continent. That's a huge number of people. And my suspicion is that's probably a low number given the economic crisis that the continent is facing today. Are public-private partnerships really the best way? This really seems like it calls for government action on the scale that governments can bring. Alibaba can't help. China Road and Bridge Corporation can't do anything because it's voluntary on their part. Corporate social responsibility, by definition, is a voluntary act on behalf of a company. And they're not going to bring that many resources to it. 
right? They're going to put a little bit, but they're, at the end of the day, companies are in Africa to do one thing, to generate profit. That's what a company is there to do. They're not there to help people on food security. They're not there to build roads for, you know, off of the main road into a farm. It's the right thing to do. It's a moral thing to do, but that's not what they're there for. They have their stakeholders who they're accountable for to bring results back. This is really the job of governments to do. And so I guess I'm a little bit surprised, and Duncan, maybe you can address this, that your, your article didn't really call on governments who have the resources to do this, to do more, and the Chinese government in particular to do more. What do you, what's your thought, Duncan? Uh, because uh, generally, we government is already doing their part. But but again, when you look at the all aspect, because also our focus, we're also looking at the uh, promotion of South South Triangular Cooperation, uh, and these also we we there are, there are different ways through these uh, through which this can be done. Because one of them again, when you look at technology transfer, for example, is a key area. So sometimes, if we have even some some of these companies training some of uh, African. Uh, African people to take up some of these roles. So, government is already doing their role because a lot of government, I mean, a lot of uh, African countries have, have been given loans from from China. But again, we are also emphasizing on a lot of companies which we don't. We, I mean, in our opinion, they are not doing that much. They is is high time that they take up this and and try to support most of these African countries where they already making a lot of profit, either through mining or through road construction. They are already making profit. And it is high time that some of this profit they are making should go back in empowering some of this community because we even see this in most African countries whereby, like for example, in Kenya, a lot of uh, companies are also trying to support the communities where they work with. Yes, Kathy, you have something maybe? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, actually, I just want to quickly go back to the debt relief, just a very quick uh, reflection on that. Uh, my point was that uh, uh, during when different parties are actually talking about the used facilities, when you are designing this fund facility, that was the time to, to bargain, to, 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 to really speak out your interest. But you know, it's a bit hard. Once everything has been settled, the plan has been there, you sort of were already doing this project, have way then you're taking back to 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 ask them to sort of change the initial agreement i think that's always not a easy uh, not a very easy way to work on then come back to the food security thing i very much agree with you eric i think uh, in this especially you look at the covid lighting time government how the government reacts uh, it really has dramatic uh, impact on the community. And I do think the government should really be you know, equip their capacities or have enough their resources to, to react a shock like this. But then if you look back our recommendations, no matter about uh, rural infrastructure or enhanced uh, production or social protections, these recommendations also actually also applies to the national government, like on how they reacted. I think uh, to tackle a food security issue, the, the, the critical issue is to address the root causes of, the, of why they are rural, why, why they are rural poor, and why uh, youth doesn't have jobs, 
it, it is really to build their, you know, the, the, the vulnerable groups resilience so that today there's a COVID lighting and tomorrow climate change, whatever shocks come, then they can tackle. And then in this process, government, of course, play critical role. And when, then when we put this in a China-African cooperation, I think a lot of times uh, this type of co cooperation has been implemented by the national governments in Africa, or at least coordinated by national government. So I think in this type of dynamics or negotiations or project formulations, it, it is a way. There are sort of uh, capacity building for the uh, national governments as well. Duncan, you, you, uh, in your in your fifth point, you actually you bring up an area that I think is is a is a an, a relatively you know kind of easy area for for cooperation between big companies and governments, which is the need to digitize all the way through the the supply chain. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and like which roles you see different actors fulfilling? I mean, in terms of digitali digitalization, uh, one is. I mean, truth be told that uh, most African countries right now, there's, this, uh, there's, there's a big wave towards digitalization, especially even in Africa, uh, either through e-commerce platform, whereby most, uh, even through farm, uh, most farmers are also using digital uh, platform to access either information or, uh, or any other thing related to agriculture. So, and given that in terms of uh, technology, China is well advanced in, in this area. And um, given that most, most African countries or uh, startup companies are also trying to support farmers, I can give example. For example, there's, uh, there's this app uh, we call Hello Tractor, and it, it connects uh, tractor owners with farmers. And still, most of these uh, farmers, some of them don't even have phones, for example. So if some of these farmers can be given, can access, I mean, affordable, cheap mobile phone, this one can be a good way of them accessing this information. So digitalization, again, given uh, the challenges through just enhanced, a lot of farmers can get a lot of information. And this has been proven to be working in most countries. Yes. The article is Rethinking China's Participation in African Agricultural Development in the Post-COVID-19 Era. As you can see, it sparked a lot of conversation. I love the fact that we're putting these new ideas onto the table to rip apart, to bounce around, to hash out. And this is exactly what we need to do right now. It was written by Duncan Chando, who's a Nairobi-based international development consultant, and also Kathy Gao, a policy and partnerships analyst at the International Fund for Agricultural Development in Beijing. Duncan, Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us. Also, thank you for sharing your wonderful essay with us on the China Africa Project website. If you want to read this, I will put a link in the show notes, and it's also uh, on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Duncan, Kathy, thank you so much. Much. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for having us. Kobus, I am so excited that the China Africa Project is becoming a forum for where we can kind of put some of these ideas out there. This is neat, again, as I've mentioned, that we're starting to look beyond the COVID-19 era a little bit as to what can be done. I think each of the five points that they raised are very, very interesting. I just disagree with them, respectfully, that it's going to be done by the private sector. I just don't think that the private sector is motivated, is aligned with those objectives. And at this point, even the private sector is under enormous financial strain. So I don't think they're actually capable of doing this. Ultimately, at the end of the day, providing food security is a 
public responsibility. This is a government responsibility on a mass scale. And this is, again, what I think Kathy brought up the point, which was very interesting, is that harmonization among countries is also a key issue here because people don't necessarily stay in one place. So when we saw famine and hunger, they start walking and crossing borders. So this is another important thing to be able to to start to harmonize some of the different initiatives in Africa because climate change, COVID-19, all of these are now regional, if not continental issues that need to be dealt with beyond the national level at some level. And that's a government responsibility in my view. Government responsibility and then a super government responsibility, you know, on the on the lines of the regional economic uh, communities or the African Union. I don't think I would kind of count out the private sector. I just don't think they will. They're going to lead the initiative. You know, I think I think yeah, they they they're definitely like massive stakeholders and they and they bring very kind of like major strengths to the table. And you know, kind of I I think one one should definitely kind of like widen the net to pull in many Western kind of private sector. Actors this too. The UN, the African Union, like the regional economic blocs, those are those are probably the bodies that will have to lead this and, and national governments. But they're absolutely right to talk about rethinking how aid and grants are given, uh, in enhancing productivity. This is a discussion that we don't have enough in the context of agriculture. Now, when we talk about productivity, I think people in the US and Europe may have a different view. And you've talked about this a lot, Kobus, as well. That productivity in our mind is automating and industrializing the agricultural process as much as possible so that we get giant super farms. Now, on a productivity level, those are incredibly efficient because basically it's very few people generating an enormous amount of output. But you've said time and again that that is not a good fit necessarily for Africa's smallholder farm system that really wouldn't necessarily deal well with mass industrialization of agriculture. Yeah, we should also keep in mind that, you know, that it's it's incredibly productive in, in the global north at the moment. Um, but what we're seeing is that, that crop yields have, have been plateauing for a long time. And in response, they're just adding more and more and more fertilizer. Like I, I saw a number recently that they that there's something like like fertilizer levels in some crops have increased by like 700 times. Um, so you know I'm not an agriculture expert, but the the kind of environmental impact of of that kind of production I think is now clear. You know, kind of I, I think it's not only that it's environmentally bad, which it is, but it's it's just not it's just not going to deliver the the amount of food that we need for the next you know kind of long term. It will only do it for the next 10, 15 years, and then it will definitely start declining. So I think, you know, like what we need is obviously technological innovation, but I think, you know, what's also really important is to to look at what what the kind of assets are that places like Africa already have and then build from there. You know, there's lots of, there's lots of um, knowledge um, among rural farmers in Africa. There's lots of knowledge on how to work their particular kind of microbiome to, to, to get better yields. Those kind of knowledges need to be respected and kind of taken into account, I think, because the only way that you're going to be building a, a, a more kind of robust agricultural system is on the back of these people's knowledge. Um, simply importing knowledge from elsewhere and, you know, kind of paving the the, the kind of the continent in wheat farms, the, it's not going to work. The last thing I wanted to kind of point out was the fact that this essay is really important to me because these are two young professionals from Kenya and from China. And it's starting to kind of shape ideas that are outside of the traditional donor space, which is, has been controlled up until now by U.S. and Europeans. 
And I think this is really going to be critical for the next evolution. These new ideas about incorporating technology and bringing over Chinese land management experience, which is, again, very different than what you just pointed out in terms of how the U.S. and Europe have much larger farms. Most of China is still smallholder farms as well, and there's a lot of lessons. Also, the fact that China is dealing with uh, desertification in a very, very serious way up in Inner Mongolia and whatnot, that is lessons and expertise that they can bring over. And so I think that this conversation that happens among young Chinese and African professionals is absolutely essential to find solutions that actually fit between these two partners. And that's something that I don't think we've heard enough of. And I'm really excited that we had that conversation today. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I think China is in a particularly um, like kind of fruitful position in, in this respect, not only because because its agricultural systems are relatively compatible with that of Africa, but also because Chinese agricultural experts already have a decades-long presence in Africa. You know, so, so China has been setting up agricultural demonstration centers, as we mentioned in previous episodes, um, for a long time. So, so there's already organic, you know, kind of cooperative relationships between these groups. It's you don't have to start it from scratch. So I think that is very promising. It just needs to be ratcheted up. But at the end of the day, freeing up this debt, the money for, from the debt is going to be a critical part of whatever happens. And that is really going to be something that we have to pay attention to. Obviously, that's an issue that we follow very closely. Agriculture, debt, COVID-19, how they all overlap with one another. Uh, we write about this every day in our China Africa Daily Brief email newsletter. Uh, we send this out, and it's so exciting that we send it out every day to a growing audience and re of readers around the world. We'd love for you to become part of our community of readers. Just $3 for three months gets you started. You'll get it every day. If you don't like it, you can cancel it. But we Hope that you would do that. Uh, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe and, uh, and check it out. If you have any questions about the newsletter, the podcast, or anything that we're doing here at the China Africa Project, of course, you can always reach Kobus and I. Very, very easy. Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com and then Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com, C-O-B-U-S. Very easy for us to reach. Better be prepared. We often give very long, detailed email answers back. We love to have these conversations with our listeners and our readers. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.